Praise God, hallelujah, we're here. Isn't this a wonderful day? It is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and what? Be glad in it. Let's no, have no sad faces, no pouty faces, no, no upsets, no anything. Let's be glad in the Lord today. Um, I'm going to be talking to you today about Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. How many of you have been or have seen either all or part of the series, The Chosen? It's on Amazon Prime, if you've got Amazon Prime. It's a story of, uh, it's a, a, um, an episodic series of the, Jesus, of the life of Jesus. It's been really good. I've got to see both first and second season. The third season is coming out one episode at a time. <sighs> I hate that. <laughs> I want them to go all on one time. That thing was filmed in Midlothian, Texas. I didn't know that. You could, you could see in the background that it's not Israel. It doesn't look like Israel at all. And you're thinking, where in the world is that? It's Midlothian, Texas. Yay, not where I'm from, but yay. <laughs> okay, in that series, we see the, the life of Jesus from the viewpoints of the various people that he interacted with throughout his ministry. And one of them was, of course, John, who wrote the gospel. And his gospel begins, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the beginning. God, in the very beginning, said something. What did he say? Let us. What? What did God say? Let us make. Exactly. Let us make man in our image. So, how do we get there? How do we get to be made in his image? Do we start out that way or do we become that way? I think that it's a, a becoming thing that happens when we accept Jesus. Then we become more like him and more like him and more like him. And his story begins with the Christmas story. Now, I know we're a few weeks past Christmas, but this is so precious. And I, I just want to make sure that we all catch exactly what the Christmas story is all about. It's a shame that it comes at the end of our calendar year. In past ages, the winter solstice marked the beginning of the year, and that's an event that happens in mid-December. That's when the shortest day, then that's supposed to be the start of the new year. And sometimes we forget what happens on December 25th, when we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus. We try to forget everything that happens. Once Christmas is over, we try to forget everything that happened in the past year, don't we? Okay, well, that's done. Whew, I'm glad I survived it. <laughs> and sometimes that also means that we forget all the wonderful things that Jesus' birth proclaimed for mankind. We get so wrapped up in thinking about the new year that we often lose the good stuff from the past year. We make resolutions about what we'll start doing better, about what bad decisions from this past year we won't be doing again. Well, I'm not ever going to do that again. <laughs> How many of you have ever done that? Think about the past year and you think, wow, boy, I'm glad I survived that and I ain't, ain't never doing that nothing again. <laughs> we ask for a raise, we plan a vacation, we buy a new car, we cut our spending and we watch our pennies. 
And all those things do matter, don't they? And we try to get things back under control. Sometimes we feel like over the Christmas holidays we've, we've just lost control of everything. We eat too much. We drink too much. We, we party too much. We stay up too late. We get up too early. And we have family over. And, it, <laughs> and we resolve, we're not doing that again next year. It is important to get those things back under control for our peace of mind. And not forgetting all the losses that we may have experienced in this past year or the great upheavals that life has brought us. But thinking about those things that really matter, what are they? They're the intangible things of the Spirit. And I want to start from Jesus' birth and see what all that portends for our daily lives. What were some of the things that occurred around his birth time, according to the Scriptures? Well, for starters, there was the decree from Caesar that everyone be counted. Every person under Roman rule had to be counted, so a census was ordered. Now, this is an actual historical event that happened. In the Gospel of Luke, it talks about the the, uh, reign of one of the leaders where all the census were started. So it's an actual historical fact that happened. So Mary and Joseph would have been subject to that decree. Now, why do you think that the Christmas story begins with this episode? Yes, it gives historical evidence pertaining to the time frame of his birth, but more importantly, I think it shows that God counts everybody. He knows each person on earth from creation onwards. He knows each of our names, where we came from, both physically and mentally and spiritually. And this census in Jesus' time was meant to be able to allow the authorities to collect the taxes that were due to the crown, just like census rolls today do. They also include information about citizenship or residency status, income, property, all sorts of information to enable the governments of this world to deal with various situations. Now, this, this, this one really tickled me when I found this out. Part of the UK census includes how many new patients are registered with the NHS. I was here for five years before I ever <laughs> registered with the doctor's office, so I didn't count for five years. <laughs> but God is telling us that He does know us, He knows every part of our lives, including our needs, like being registered with the doctor's office. And sometimes he uses worldly governments to meet those needs. Isn't that precious? That's what I can see from the story of the census that was taken at Jesus' birth. Next, we come to the story of Elizabeth and Mary. This is doubly significant in that it shows even the unborn recognizes who Jesus is. Now, that's amazing. Babies in the womb know who Jesus is. There's a little story about the, the, this divot in our upper lips. It's just as a baby is being born, his or her guardian angel speaks to the child and says, you can remember all that you know of heaven, but shh, you can't ever tell anybody. And I think that's so precious. We, we, as babies, they can remember. Where do you think those laugh, laughters come from? Where do you think those joyous moments come from when nobody's talking to the kid and he's laughing right out loud? 
It's because he's remembering heaven. He's remembering what it was like to be in heaven before he was born. That's what I think. I may be all wet, but that's what I think. (laughs) And secondly, this is the spark of divine encounter between Jesus and, and John that would release the prophetic voice in John the Baptist later on. It would help him to recognize Jesus as the Messiah at the appointed time. They may have been cousins, but not necessarily mean that they lived close enough to be childhood friends. They knew each other, I'm sure, but maybe not as bosom buddies. So just like Jesus needed to grow into maturity, so John needed to grow into his destiny, just as we all do today. We need to grow. Once we become children of God, we still need to grow. We still are babies in the spirit when we first come to the Lord. But as we grow and we mature, then we learn the things that John knew, the things that Jesus learned as he grew up in his, in his destiny as well. Next is the actual birthplace of Jesus in a borrowed stable. He wasn't born in a hospital. He wasn't even born at home, but in a stable. You ever been to a stable or a barn? They stink. They are smelly places. But even more poignant is the line that says he was laid in a manger. Now, most places at that time didn't have those cute little wooden feeding boxes with a straw in it. You know, they had stone troughs that were laid on the ground. And that had two functions. One was for feeding the animals and watering the animals. And secondly, if that household held sacrifices... The animal, usually a lamb at Passover time and other times when uh, sacrifices were part of their rituals, would be killed in that stone trough. And its blood would pour out of there into whatever kind of receptacle that they needed for using in that ritual. Whether it's sprinkled on the altar in Jerusalem or whether it's whatever they did with with their rituals at that time. Secondly, his birth would have been at the time of year when atonement sacrifices were being made. And the significance of him being laid in that stone trough or manger would have been noticed by anybody who understood that part of Jewish history. So from the very beginning, he was marked for sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God, and he was marked for cleansing as the living water. And the fact that Mary and Joseph had to travel over 90 miles on foot from Nazareth to Jerusalem and Bethlehem has to do with the Jewish laws of inheritance. That's why they had to go down there. Joseph was descended from the line of David, the king. And the city of Jerusalem was called the city of David. So where else would the king of the universe be born? Where else was he supposed to be born? Ethiopia? No. He was born nearby the city of David, the city of the king. And the very word Bethlehem means house of bread. And Jesus was our living bread. Are you beginning to see and understand the prophetic threads of the Old Covenant being woven through the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life? How he fulfilled the prophecies from of old? I, I, I just, it just, I get so tickled when I can see those things. It's like, oh, this was in Zechariah. Oh, this was in Isaiah. Oh, this was in Genesis. All of the things through the Old Testament 
point to this particular time in history. Next, we have the story of the three wise men, or the magi, or the kings, as they're called, who traveled from the east. Now, there's, <laughs> as I was looking this up this week, I saw that there's widely varying accounts of how far that they came, from as little as 350 miles to over 3,400 miles. So somewhere in there is where they started out from. If they came from China, which is about as far east as you can get from Israel, it probably would be that longer distance. If they came from Babylon, which was a center of culture at that time, it could have been a much shorter journey. But they traveled a long time and a long way to get there. Whatever length it was, it was momentous for its spiritual relevance. These were wise men, those who used their minds and their intellect and not and were not just emotionally driven people, recognizing something outstanding was happening in Jerusalem and the surrounding territory at that time. You know, sometimes we, we hear super intellectual people who have all the alphabet letters behind their name, you know, blah, 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 doctor of this, that, and the other thing. Oh, well, that, you know, religion, that's just for the stupid people. They just have, they're just emotional, you know, that's all. But these were wise men. These were educated people. These were people who used their minds. They didn't just dismiss what they saw and heard. They came looking. They came expecting. It was a marking point, a change in direction for the entire world, and not just for that time frame, but for all eternity. The wise men were clued in. And as it has been said, wise men seek him still. So it's not just an emotional journey. It is a journey of wisdom as well. And we still mark this visitation of the kings with their gifts on January 6th, which is called Epiphany. And that word also means enlightenment. (laughs) So when we have an epiphany, it's like, oh, duh, the light bulb came on. I understand that now. So so that's what this means. That's what that feast means. And it also is celebrated on January 6th, and that's the 12th day after Christmas. Did you know that? So there's the connection once again, even to our modern age. Now, I'm going to take a little sidetrack here. This is really fun. Do you know the significance of the gifts? In that song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? Okay. And it starts out, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Well, who's that true love? That's right, Jesus. It's not a smitten boy or girlfriend. It's Jesus Christ because love was truly born on Christmas Day. The partridge in a pear tree also represents Jesus because partridges are willing to sacrifice their own lives to protect their young by faking an injury to draw the predators away. But Jesus didn't just fake an injury. He actually died for us to draw Satan away from us. Two turtle doves, that's the Old and New Testament. Three French hens, faith, hope, and love. Four calling birds are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Five golden rings recall the Torah or the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, books of Moses. Six geese a-laying 
are the six days of creation. Seven swans of swimming are the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit. Prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, and mercy. The eight maids of milking are the eight beatitudes. You know, blessed be the poor in spirit, and blessed be this, that one and the other one. The nine ladies dancing are the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The ten lords leaping are the ten commandments. Eleven pipers piping stand for the eleven faithful disciples, minus Judas, the one that betrayed the Lord. The twelve drummers drumming symbolize the twelve points of belief in the Apostles' Creed. So even in our modern secular world, we're being given a Bible lesson each Christmas season when we, see, when we sing this song. And I thought that was so cool. I am so pleased that I found that this week. I did not know all of these things. And it's a really good reminder. Now back to the kings. We're going back. <laughs> I digressed, but now we're going back to the kings. They were warned in a dream not to return to Jerusalem where Herod, the present king, was looking for intelligence on where the real king of the Jews had been born, as the scribes had told him. So they left. They got out of of Dodge by another route. Then this horrible king, in order to keep control of his reign, ordered all the baby boys under two years of age to be killed. This showed the true scope of evil that our enemy is capable of. This vile act is still commemorated in some churches as the Feast of the Holy Innocents, when the lives of those precious babies are still remembered even over 2,000 years later. And that's usually commemorated on December 28th. And we can see that the devil has not changed his mode of operation. He's still set on killing innocent babies and innocence itself. But even as the three kings left, Joseph and Mary were warned in another dream for them to get out of town too and to go down to Egypt. Well, why did they have to go to a foreign country? Why didn't the Lord just send them to, you know, the the backside of beyond instead of sending them down to Egypt? Well, I think it was to show that Jesus was born not just to deal with the Jews, but to all people. And this is the land where the Jews were held captive for over 400 years. Interesting to note, too, that it had been over 400 years since the last major prophet of the Lord had been in operation. It was like Jesus was correcting the course of events that the Hebrews had set in motion during their 40 years in the wilderness, retracing the steps of captivity and taking back what the enemy had stolen through their lack of spiritual understanding. That lack of spiritual understanding is what kept them bound to the law for all those years up to the moment of Jesus' birth. Now, the last bit of the Christmas story itself is when Jesus is told in another dream that Herod was dead, the king who sought to kill Jesus at his birth. Now, they'd been in exile for a long time, hidden away. Jesus was being protected, just as we are today. Sometimes God sends us, too, into a place where we are hidden. But it's not banishment. But like in the crime movies, it's witness protection. When the time is right, 
when God has made all the moves necessary for his plan to come to fruition, he will release us back into the place of his choosing for the fulfillment of our destiny and the time and place for us to minister the good news to the people around us. So those are the alpha moments of the gospel, the beginning. What about the omega moments, the ending? Well, for one thing, this is a never-ending story. So that's kind of a misnamed idea. But to carry on with that idea, the alpha and omega, let's look at some of the things that Jesus that did end with Jesus coming. First and foremost, the separation that existed between a holy and righteous God and sinful man was then ended. That separation, like Jude was talking about last week, that separation was mended through Jesus' teaching and his demonstration of that man when he died on the cross and the temple veil tore into two pieces. The veil that separated a holy God from an unholy people. There was no longer that separation. No gap. No distance. In Jewish teaching, any contact with people outside their own community was considered to be contaminating, making them unclean and unable to communicate communicate with God or each other. So when that veil tore into two pieces, it gave access to a holy God by an unholy people. That was unthinkable. They even thought it was sacrilege to even think like that, that they could have access to a holy God because people are wicked. But Jesus' death did away with that idea. He became the connecting point. His death was the thing that fulfilled all the law, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, paid all the penalties for each and every person, and each and every sin, except for the sin that can't be forgiven, the one that says the Holy Spirit of God is rubbish and ineffectual and nonsense, because that sin puts us on the throne of life instead of God, who in his infinite wisdom is also the Holy Spirit. So what else did Jesus do for us? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, his, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Now, does that mean rich in gold, diamonds and precious jewels? No. Not necessarily. Could. But I think it's rich in wisdom. Rich in understanding. Rich in connection with God. Rich in knowing who we are. Rich in understanding that God loves us. Rich in the fact that Jesus himself died for us. That's how we become rich through Jesus' poverty. That is so amazing. Our wealth is in heaven. Our treasures are in heaven. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He was wounded. Have you ever seen the movie The Passion? The scenes where Jesus is being flogged. Those are so graphic and so grisly and so gory. But that's what the Lord endured. 
And the one thing about that particular scene that always gets to me is when those Roman soldiers are hitting him and then flinging that, those whip, that whip backwards. His blood is being spattered all across the Romans as well. His blood even covered them. Do you ever think about that? That the Lord's blood even covered the ones who crucified him? How amazing is that? In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're begotten three times. We're begotten once as humans. We're begotten again by the Spirit when we accept the Lord. Then we're begotten again the third time when we begin to grow and understand what God has done for us. We have the ability to begin again and again and again and again. It doesn't matter how many times we fall or fail or fall short. The Lord will forgive us. He will restore us. He will set us back on our feet. He will give us that begotten again status. In 1 Peter 1.18, it says, You know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. When those sacrifices were made in the Old Testament, they had to pick the most perfect lamb that they could find. One that didn't have any carbuncles or they didn't have any flea bites. They didn't have any anything wrong with them. They had to be absolutely pure and spotless and perfect. And that's who Jesus is. He was pure and spotless and perfect. To be redeemed means to be bought back. Like an item sold at a pawn shop. But when you have the right price, again, you go and buy it back or redeem that item from the store. Adam and Eve sold our birthright as children of God for fruit. An apple or an orange or an ugly fruit, whatever it was. Jesus redeemed that birthright for us with his own life and blood. That is so amazing to me. It just, can you imagine buying back our birthright with his life? In Psalm 103 from the Message Bible, it gives a pretty comprehensive rundown of everything that Jesus has done for us. And this was written years and years and decades and centuries before Jesus was born. But this is exactly what the Holy Spirit had intended for the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless God. From head to toe, I'll bless his holy name. Oh, my soul, bless God. And don't forget a single blessing. He forgives your sins. Everyone. He heals your diseases. Everyone. He redeems you from hell, saves your life. He crowns you with love and mercy, a paradise crown. He wraps you in goodness and beauty eternal. He renews your youth. 
You're always young in his presence. We're not always young in our own eyes, but we're always young in his presence. God makes everything come out right. He puts victims back on their feet. He showed Moses how he went about his work. He opened up all of his plans to Israel. God is sheer mercy and grace. He's not easily angered. He is rich in love. He doesn't endlessly scold and nag us, nor does he hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor pay us back in full for our wrongs. As high as the heaven is over the earth, so strong is his love to those who fear him. And as far as sunrise is from sunset, that's how far he has separated us from our sins. As parents feel for their children, God feels for those who fear him. As much as we love our kids, God loves us even more, even more than that. He knows us inside and out and keeps in mind that we're made of mud. Men and women don't live very long. Like wildflowers, they spring up and blossom, but a storm will snuff them out just as quickly, leaving nothing to show that they were here. God's love, though, is ever and always eternally present to all who fear him. Making everything right for them and their children as they follow his covenant ways and remember to do whatever he said. God has set his throne in heaven. He rules over us all. He is the king. So bless God, you angels, ready and able to fly at his bidding, quick to hear and do what he says. Bless God, all you armies of angels, alert to respond to whatever he wills. Bless God, all creatures, wherever you are, everything and everyone made by God. And you, O oh my soul, bless God. This, then, is the omega part of Jesus' story. He's God at the beginning, God at the end, creating life in the first place and recreating life at the end. So the next time you hear the phrase alpha and omega, think about these things. Remember, God himself claimed he was the Alpha and Omega. He begins all things, and all things end in him and with him. You have given your lives to become one with that concept. God began your new lives and will keep you until he is at the ending of it. Praise be to God. Amen.